CS3P Combat. Player one, choose your character. Tired of film and television podcasts where the hosts exist in a blissful state of agreement? Player two, choose your character. While you're in luck. Punter. Round one, fight. Allow me to introduce you to the Chinstroker vs. Punter podcast, featuring two film and television fans from Birmingham, England, who enjoy their media in very different ways. But anyway, that brings us to the end of the plot of Blue Velvet. The plot. I mean, the main characters are two of the dullest main characters I have ever encountered in any film. So join us as we catch up on what we've been watching from our own very different perspectives. Double KO. Round two. Fight. You can find us at csvsp.libson.com, also on Spotify, iTunes, Stitcher, all the places that podcasts can be found. It just really, it's isn't. not visually striking. No, I'm just just getting confirmation. It's just in That's the third time, though. I mean, am I, is this on? They say cats have nine lives. You have only one. A poisonous cat. Now, how's that possible? You're gonna be richer than your wildest dreams! True Freaks Internet Radio Broadcast. Now start the engine and get us headed for the Caymans. <gasps> These things are gonna bite us, and we're all gonna die a horrible Uninvited, starring George Kennedy and Alex Cord. You'll never look at a cat in the same way again. Chris Honeywell is an internet loudmouth. Yo, dog, I heard you like cats. Well, how about a cat inside a cat? Hated and reviled by his few remaining friends, he catches the attention of Thomas DJ, perhaps the world's most cunning supervillain. Ensconced in his ultra-scientific hideout, with only his robot army and stunning assistant to keep him company, DJ springs into action. Is this city, you see? In Virginia, use the molecular transmigration beam to bring this fool to me! Virginia trains the hellish mechanism, and with a clap like thunder, and in a blinding psychedelic light, Chris Honeywell stands before his tormentor. Normally, I do not suffer fools, but I see beyond the yawning chasm of ignorance that is your brain and the endless sluice of sewage which is your mouth that they form a basic animal intelligence that I may be able to mold to my own devices. Uh, okay. Therefore, in my mercy, I offer you two choices. Instant painless disintegration or you study grindhouse movies at my feet now! Choose! 
I choose not disintegration. So be it. In one month, I shall assign you a movie to watch and will summon you again. Be ready, or the consequences shall be swift and merciless. Right, but how do I get to the... Now go! And thus began one of the most dangerous and unpredictable endeavors in evil sciencing. The Honeywell Experiment! Okay, so, uh, got this massive yacht thing here, Mr. Graydon. Um, got it in a sale for about $15,000. Now we're going to port in the lab monkey and we get to torture him. Isn't that great? <laughs> Wonderful. Okay. Virginia! Bring in the monkey. Ah! Oh, oh man, not not a boat. I get seasick easy. <laughs> Be quiet and eat your champagne and cornflakes. Oh, I love cornflakes. Now I'm, I'm eat sure every you... cornflake like it's my last. <laughs> it might very well be because <laughs> you may go over the side, my friend. Um. As you can see, I, I brought a guest along today. Hello. So, the film that we're talking about, I decided to bring in the producer and director of that film and many other great films uh, that that played the grindhouses and the video shelves throughout the 70s, 80s, and 90s. Uh, may I present to you... Mr. Graydon Clark. Hello, guys. How are you all doing? I'm doing good. I know. Speaking, I know I'm speaking for Thomas, too. You're talking to two cat people here. Yes. <laughs> and, and, and not like the movie cat people. No, no, no. no. <laughs> and More like I, the Grey Gardens movie cat people. Yeah. Uh, did you watch the movie? I did. Now, I've been I've been I've been waiting to to watch this movie too because well I'll get into it later but there, there there's been a reason I haven't haven't watched this movie and that was because the easiest way to to till I finally I I luckily have a friend who's a movie collector and loves horror movies and he owned this on DVD and so we had a little party over at his house but I've only been able to find it before on MST3K, mm-hmm. and I absolutely refuse to watch MST3K movies until I've seen the movie first. I don't like watching watching something for the first time with people talking over it. Mm-hmm. So I've been waiting to see this one. So do I? Did you did you enjoy it? Or I, it was everything I could have ever wanted from it as a matter of fact the, the moment i knew that i was gonna love it was when i realized that the cat had judgment <laughs> the cat the cat was only at the beginning the cat was only killing the you know if you're nice to the cat and gave it food 
it wasn't going to kill. As a matter of fact, it would also like sort of defend you. Right. So I that and, and once that happened, once that rule got set in, I was just like, I'm going to love this movie. <laughs> I'm I'm rooting, you know, rooting for the cat every time. And, and the reason I chose this, uh, not only because it is along with Joysticks, my favorite of Graydon's films. And by the way, thank you so much for introducing me to Corin Bohr all those years ago. Isn't she terrific? She, she is wonderful and she is gorgeous. And I still am a little mad at you for breaking breaking the character's heart at the end by letting <laughs> Jeff go off with Sandy. But yes. um, because not only is it one of my favorites, but it is also a film that sits in a very interesting point in the development of what we've been calling grindhouse cinema on this show, namely the transition of low budget independent filmmaking from the independent circuits towards direct to video. Yes. Well, joysticks did get an extensive theatrical release. Mm-hmm. Uh, in fact, the week that it opened, we were the number one picture in the entire country. And uh, uh, we were in about 600 theaters, which at that time was a fair amount. Today, of course, there's they're in three and 4,000 theaters mm-hmm. the first week they opened. But uh, uh, we did very well with that picture. Uh, unfortunately, uh, <clears throat> as you may recall from reading my autobiography, let me plug it for On a second. Cheap. It's uh, called On the Cheap, <laughs> My Life in Low-Budget Films. Uh, Joysticks did, did have quite a successful theatrical release, but the distributor got caught in the transition from theatrical to direct-to-video. Mm-hmm. And uh, the distributor went bankrupt, owing me uh, well a small fortune, which I never received. But uh, it's interesting that you say the transition from theatrical to DVD because Uninvited, my movie about the cat on board a luxury yacht, uh, was really the first film that I made where I realized no matter what I do with this picture, it's going to go direct to, in in those days, VHS, Mm. today DVD. So I, I, I realized I had to really make it with a budget that could get my money back so that I could continue to make pictures. Uh, <coughs> excuse me. So uh, I, I had always put recognizable names, stars, if you will, usually old character stars, and then the young people were unknown. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I realized even for the DVD, well, the home video market, uh, I would continue to put stars in it. And in the case of of Uninvited, I put George Kennedy, Alex Cord, Clue Gulliger, uh, all very, very recognizable people. I had worked with George Kennedy previously, Mm -hmm. a picture called Wacko. And uh, George was a terrific fellow obviously a great actor. I think everybody recognizes that. 
But he also was very, very kind and cooperative to the young actors on the set, who obviously were a lot less experienced than he. And Alex Cord uh, was a very recognizable character actor. Uh, he had uh, just come off not too long before this, where he was uh, Jan Michael Vincent's co-star in Airwolf, the CBS mm -hmm. television series. Hi, my and, Andrew Layler. Clue Gallagher. <laughs> Clue is fantastic in, in all ways. Uh, I mean, he, he does countless films. I believe Clue is still with us. Uh, I, and, I'm uh, not sure. Black I think so. Too. Pardon? I, I think so. I think you're correct. Yeah, yeah. Uh, really, and again, I, I always had very, very, I was very fortunate in that the recognizable actors that I uh, put in my pictures all worked very well with the kids, with the young young unknowns that really had more important and, and larger parts than they. But I guess they realized that uh, to get the scene and get the scene done well, they had to cooperate, and they did. And they, they probably saw a lot of themselves in, in, in them, too, and were just like, you know, I'll, I'll do what I would have wanted somebody to have done when I was a young young actor that's yeah, that's a very very good point that, that, that's what I've I, uh, I I noticed about you I've, I've been on the set of a few independent films in in my day and it, it all hinges on the director whether you're gonna have a good day or a bad day a lot of the t well there's a lot of things that hinges on whether you're gonna have a good day or bad day but um the the way you would describe your sets is the way that I would describe all the sets that I enjoyed being on where you have a crew that's that gets along and it's it's a co it becomes a cooperative effort and that's that's what I got out of out of your book that you like you would work with everybody to just keep it moving out of out of necessity and uh well yes uh thank you for that and and it's true too because uh, when uh, all the films that I made, with few exceptions, I made basically through my own financial resources, which would mean I would uh, go to the bank and borrow money against my house. And uh, then I would put it all into the picture so that if the picture uh, was not successful, uh, I would lose everything because I had everything on the line. So... Uh, with that in mind, I, I had to prepare uh, to a great uh, deal of uh, preparation so that uh, uh, when I got on the set, I knew what I needed and I knew how long it was going to take me. And, and I had to stick to that because I was not working with other people's money. I should have been. <laughs> I was not working in a, in a situation where... If I went over budget, the studio would just say, ah, yeah, yeah, but they would give me the money. Mm -hmm. If I went over budget on one of my films, I was screwed completely because I didn't have any place to go to go over. So, and, and the budget is primarily, well, to, to a great extent, the budget is determined by the shooting schedule. And on Uninvited, I had three weeks to make the film. 
as you know, the vast majority of the picture takes place on board a luxury yacht. And uh, uh, I would say of the 15 days that I had to film, uh, I'm going to guess 17 of them, uh, excuse me, 13 of them uh, were on the yacht. Uh, sometimes, probably maybe four or five days, the yacht was moored to the pier, and I would just be filming inside. Actually, probably more than that. Of the 13 days that I was on the yacht, I would guess that we were out in the open sea uh, maybe five or six of those days, and the balance the yacht was moored to the uh, pier. But you mentioned something about seasickness. Uh, uh, some of the crew, uh, myself included, uh, had no problem when we were out to sea, but George Kennedy did. Uh, <laughs> he, between t takes, he would find himself kind of half lying on a couch that was part of the set, and I would go over to him as George, are, are you okay? Are you okay? Uh, yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm fine. I'm just, just a little woozy. Uh, but I think I had George for one week mm -hmm. of the three weeks and the same with Alex Cord. And I think Luke Gulliger was three days. Uh, again, all of them very, very professional and very, uh, uh, wonderful to work with. Alex Cord is, is a riot in this movie. From from his opening lines, the, the 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 his smooth that smooth delivery that he had was just perfect for his character. And I love the fact that you get the sense pretty early on that George Kennedy is the brains of the outfit. That even yes. though he's he's the muscle, he's also he's like babysitting. Yes, yes. he's yes. definitely babysitting. Yes. <laughs> Well, George, George Kennedy's character and Alex's character, I mean, Alex was the front man as far as the media was concerned. He was the one on the cover of the magazines. He was the Wall Street wizard. But any of the dirty work that needed doing, and there was a lot of them with these two characters, it was Kennedy that was the muscle. Right. And then, and then of course, Clue Gulliger, uh, there's a scene uh, early on in the picture where these three guys, George Kennedy, Alex Court, and Clue Gulliger, uh, kill a, a Wall Street guy who is about to blow the whistle on them, and they drown him in a, in a uh, hot tub that is part of the yacht. And uh, so, and we were filming at night, and it was cold, uh, not cold like you guys have in New York, but cold mm -hmm. like we have nights in Los Angeles. So, uh, yeah, I'm staging the scene around this uh, uh, hot tub, and I've got uh, Alex there, and, and I've got to, uh, 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 George Kennedy there, Clue Gulliger, and the other actor whose name I will give you, Michael Holden. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, and he's, he knows that he's in trouble uh, because uh, they're accusing him or, or saying that he might blow the whistle on them to the uh, uh, Federal Trade Commission, the Wall Street cops. So he begins to realize that he's in a very bad situation alone on this yacht, and not in the middle of the ocean, but far out to sea. 
So anyhow, the, the three guys drowned him. And it's it's Clue Gulliger who gets in the water of the mm-hmm. spot and actually holds the guy that they're drowning underneath. And, and you know, it, it worked really well. And uh, so we're done with the drowning. And I'm about to, to wrap. And I noticed that Clue is actually shaking. Mm-hmm. So I, again, said to him, I mean, these guys were older than I was at the time. Now right. I'm much older than they were then. But uh, I said to him, Clue, are you okay? You all right? And, and he said, yeah, I'm just a little cold. So I thought, I, I'm going to use that. So I had uh, I had Alex Cord's character kind of make fun of Clue. I said, look, look, look at Albert. He, he's shaking. He's shaking. <laughs> and uh, uh, George Kennedy kind of smirked at him and so forth. And uh, uh, Clue ad-libbed a line about, well, I'm just, I'm just cold. I'm just cold. So uh, those three guys really worked well together. Mm-hmm. I don't know. This is an interesting question. I don't know if they had ever worked along with one another or not. Mm-hmm. Uh, to my knowledge, they had not. The, the other name that, and I did not realize that this was him because he's blonde in this film. Yeah. The other person in the cast that, to me, jumped out, because I'm a long-term placemat, a fan of Melrose Place, for those of you who don't know, was Rob Estes. Of course. Well, when I I was casting the picture, you don't uh, ask George Kennedy or Alex Cord or Clue Gulliger Mm -hmm. to come in for a casting session. Because these guys, you know, have been in the business, were in the business dozens and dozens and dozens of years and had done dozens and dozens of films. So you assume or, or their agent assumes that that I would know who they they are. And of course, I did. But all of the other roles, I interviewed actors uh, and had them come in uh, to my office and uh, uh, give me read, give me a reading uh, I don't know, I'm getting technical here a bit, but you don't give them the whole script, you give them sides, which right. is usually two mm-hmm. or three pages. Uh, two or three pages from a scene, you know, you let them look at it in an outer office and prepare for their uh, interview with the director. So anyhow, in walked uh, Rob Estes. Now this is prior to him doing anything really right uh i didn't know who he was and uh uh, i had a a, an an assistant uh helping me uh reading off camera lines so that rob would have someone to read to and he read and he gave me a very very good reading however uh this is i guess not fair to him, although he went along with it. I had already cast Bo Draymond as as his buddy Lance, and mm-hmm. he had dark hair. And and I liked Bo's reading. Again, these were all unknown kids. Uh, I liked Bo's reading, and and I liked Rob's reading. But I I always tried to have my individual actors have a distinct look from the other actors that they were playing with. Mm-hmm. In other words, if, if one guy was dark hair and six foot tall and muscular, I didn't want the, his buddy to be dark hair, six foot tall and 
muscular. muscular. So I said to Rob, I said, Rob, assuming we can work this out with your agent, would you be willing to go blonde? Uh, I'll have my hairdresser, you know, give me the treatment so Mm -hmm. that hair looks naturally blonde. And uh, without missing a beat, he said, of course, blondes have more fun, don't they? Mm -hmm. So I was very happy to have Rob. And of course, Rob went on to have a very nice career, Uh, not only on Melrose Place, but I think he played Mike Hammer in a series. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think he was on a, a, a series shot in San Diego. Uh, I've forgotten the name of it now, but but uh, and, and he still works on occasion. Very nice guy. Again, all of my <laughs> all of my young actors mm-hmm. were always cooperative. Uh, uh, I, I think I think if I'm not breaking my own back, patting myself, <laughs> uh, I think that when they first come on the set. And they realize that I know what I'm doing, I know what mm-hmm. I need, and uh, I'm willing to, in fact, I am eager to have them add whatever they can to the set. Mm-hmm. I don't want them to be puppets of me. Right. I never, never, I mean, I say never, I may have done it once or twice, but I never give a line reading to an actor. In other words, if, if an actor has a line that says, uh, come on, let's get out of here before... Fred shows up and they're having trouble with it for whatever reason, I would always go to the actor and whisper in their ear because many actors, uh, in fact, I would say almost all actors hate to be given direction that other actors hear. Mm-hmm. So I would always go to them and whisper in their ear, well, try saying this or try saying that, but I would never give them the actual line reading. Because I didn't want to see my performance, I wanted to see their right. Uh, that reminds me of a of a scene in another picture, and I'm sidetracking a bit here. But I was actually, I think I was about to just bring up that same scene. <laughs> well, I, I would be surprised, although you read the book, so you with, yeah, is it okay. with the spear? Pardon? Was is it with the spear? The the scene um, with the actor. He had to he had to grab a spear and and then throw it. Oh well, I, no. I just I remember Jonathan that in the Baker. book. Yeah, that, because that I was, was like Jonathan Baker in Final Justice. Yes, because I remember I it. Would, I would on occasion do some uh, some physical bit of business. That's what that was. That was not really right. a line reading. But it sort of stood out in the book because. You could tell by the way you were describing it that you were hesitant to do it, that you didn't want to do it, and I was just like, "Yeah, he does it doesn't like to tell people what to do." It's such a um, that it was so memorable to you that you had to show someone what to do in that scene that you remembered to put it in the book. You know? Yeah. Well, Joe yeah. Don, I, I did three pictures with Joe Don Baker. Again, a wonderful guy. I mean, really, he's one of my favorite character actors. Of yeah. all time. Well, he's he's great and he deserves his his tremendous success. You know, he was the first actor <laughs> to get a million dollars for a television series. Uh, it only lasted like uh, uh, 15 episodes. It was on CBS. It was very good. Mm-hmm. He played a, uh, a chief of police in New York City who was born and raised in Texas. So there was mm-hmm. that was the gimmick of the show. 
anyhow, uh, no, that was uh, Joe Don could not, for some reason, and Joe Don was quite athletic, mm-hmm. uh, a great golfer. He loved golf, but for some reason, Joe Don could not grab a spear, knock a guy out with it, and then throw it in the same motion. So after two or three attempts, I, I said, John, look, let, let me show you how it should be done. So I went and I grabbed the spear, knocked the guy and threw it. Mm-hmm. And uh, he said, oh, great, you should be doing this part. I said, yeah, but I'm not Joe Don Baker. Right. <laughs> so no, the, the, the uh, uh, part I was going to tell you about line reading mm-hmm. was from a picture called Angel's Brigade. I had an actor playing himself. Arthur Godfrey. Arthur Godfrey was a huge star in early television. He was an MC. He had a talk show. Kind of, I guess kind of. He had of like, like a, a talent show of some sort. Yes, yes. There was Arthur Godfrey talent show, and I mean he was on the air like seven or eight hours a day in early television. So he was a major, major star. And in this picture, I have a character who's a singer. And she's in Las Vegas singing, and we introduce Arthur Godfrey from the audience as Arthur Godfrey. So uh, uh, the, the girl singer says, I'd like to thank Arthur Godfrey for being in the audience today. He stands up, round of applause, etc." Then we cut backstage after the song. And Godfrey by that time was, oh, probably 70, maybe a little older still looked good and still seemed to have all of his faculties. So it's a very simple scene. We're backstage and and Godfrey says to the young actress, the way I had written it, he says, oh, your performance was wonderful. Uh, You're going to be a big star. I'm having a get together in my uh, suite. All the stars from the strip are coming. We're going to start around 2 a.m. And you're more than welcome to come. Mm And then the girl says, oh, I would love to, uh, Arthur, but uh, I have a recording session tomorrow in in Los Angeles, and I've got to leave tonight for there. So Godfrey says, well, that's all right. You keep doing that. Okay. So I staged a scene with uh, Arthur and the girl. I guess I should say woman. Uh, uh, And he could not deliver the line saying, you're wonderful. I'm having a get together in my suite. And he just couldn't do it. I mean, <laughs> simple line. I bet you, and I, I am notorious for only taking one take or two. Mm-hmm. I'll bet you I took 10, 12, 15 takes with the guy. Mm-hmm. And he was, he was very apologetic. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. You know, that's okay. That's all right. Don't worry. We'll just do it again. So finally, I pull him aside and I say, listen, Arthur. I wrote this script, but those lines are not Shakespeare. I don't care about shit what you say. Mm-hmm. Just say you 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 know you loved her performance and she's going to be a big star. I don't care how you say it. You've probably said it to a thousand performers over the years. Mm-hmm. Make up your own words. I don't care what it is. Just just tell her she's going to be a big star and she'll thank you. So that's what he did. He did it in one take. He did it perfectly, and it was ninety percent of what I had written anyhow. And as I said to him, it was not exactly Shakespeare. Mm-hmm. So nobody knew what the lines I had written. So I don't know how I got on that tangent. You can cut it off. That's okay. In fact, I was going to 
mention that one of the things, the impressions that I got from reading your book, and I devoured it in, a, in about a week. What's the title of the book? On the Cheap. On the Cheap, yes. My Life in Low-Budget Filmmaking. Available at my website. Yeah, and... and Bradenclark.com. And, and I'm going to give it a big thumbs up. I collect fil filmmaking books. Ah. And uh, my favorite filmmaking books are the ones written by uh, uh, directors. Like, I got um, Roger Corman's How I Made, you yes. know, A Thousand Movies in Hollywood and Never Lost a Dime, and Lloyd yeah. Kaufman's Autobiography. And they're the most I, – I like the stuff on the lower end of the budget – because sure. they're way, it's way more exciting. In your book, every you not only lay out how you made the movies, but how you finance the movies. Mm -hmm. yeah. That's the first part of every movie. So every movie yeah. that you cover, you hear the financing of it, and you and and for most of the book, you know, you get to a part eventually where here it comes. He puts a lien on his house, right. and then when we got to the. The first and movie you that you didn't have to put a lien on your house, I was just friend. like, yay! It was such an exciting part of the book. I'm like, finally, no lien. We're getting to the lien part. Oh, there's no lien this time. Yay! <laughs> but well, I want you know, uh, what do they say? Necessity is a mother, right? Yeah. So, so uh, I loved making movies. Mm. And I've been very, very, very lucky. Uh, in fact, I think the first couple of words in my autobiography are, I was born lucky. And I believe that because uh, over the years, I've known a lot of very talented people, actors, uh, camera people, uh, writers, etc. And <laughs> some that I thought, boy, this is, let's talk about actors for a second. Boy, this actor, this kid. Uh, male or female is really good. They're going to have a great career, and they never work again. And then uh, I'll have somebody who I think, well, you know, I mean, they're okay. I made it work, but I'm certainly not going to hire them again. And they become stars. Mm -hmm. So uh, it, talent is important, obviously. Right. But talent is not the end all and be all. Uh, I gave a lot of people their first job, actors specifically, and Dean Cundy. I gave Dean Cundy the great... I was about to bring up Mr. Cundy and Mr. Von Sternberg. Yes. Well, Cundy... <laughs> Cundy was terrific and extremely talented. I was doing a picture called Black Shampoo. Mm -hmm. This is in the uh, early 70s. It was my third picture. And uh, I, again, had everything on the line. Uh, in those days, everything meant $50,000, which mm -hmm. I was born a poor kid. My father was a barber in a small town in Michigan. Uh, uh, so I didn't have any money. When I first went to Los Angeles, I had $200 in my pocket. But anyhow, uh, so I was ready to make black shampoo. I had a set built, I had it cast. I, first day of filming, I walk on the set and my director of photography, a talented fellow named Michael Milam, came to me and his face was all swollen and black and blue and blood dripping from one eye. I said, my God, what happened? Oh, I was in an automobile accident last night. This was before seat belts. Right. Not before seat belts were available, but before idiots didn't use them, myself included. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, so he had he had been uh, he had he had rear-ended the guy in front of him, and he, his face went into the steering wheel, and he was really screwed up. Uh, he said, "But don't worry, don't worry, Graydon. I'll be okay. I can do this." I know. God, what am I going to do? Because I couldn't postpone. I, I again, didn't have right. Money. I mean, you have a tight schedule going on. I had a two-week schedule to make that picture, 10 days. So <laughs> so he started, you know, kind of uh, fumbling around, stumbling around. And finally, he came to me after just about 10 minutes. And he said, great, and I'm sorry. I, I just, I can't, I can't. I've got mm-hmm. to go home. I've got to lie down. So he said, but I'll tell you what, my gaffer, which is the head electrician, the head lighting, my gaffer on the set, I had met him because he supplied the equipment, the lighting equipment and the camera. Uh, he had a, 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 a van that he had uh, a jerry rig for all this movie equipment and he called it the movie van. He said, but Dean Cundy, uh, can shoot. I said, oh my God, I'm going to have the gaffer shoot. What the hell? What am I, what am I doing here? <laughs> so Cundy comes over and he says, I said, uh, uh, Dean, do you, now I had only met him once mm-hmm. and I had, had not, well, I had had several weeks of discussions with Michael Milam, the cameraman that was leaving, how we were going to film it, what the scenes were. I had taken him to locations, et cetera. So I hadn't done any of that with Dean. So uh, Dean comes in and says, uh, I said, Dean, do you think you can do this? Ah, yeah, I, I can do it. I've shot a couple of things. I think it was UCLA, mm-hmm. USC that he had gone to. Uh, uh, but I can, I can do it. I can do it. So he had never shot really a film before. So I said, well, what am I going to do? You know, I mean, I, I got to have somebody behind me. So, started working that day. It went wonderfully. He was very creative, very intelligent, uh, fast moving. I said to him before we started shooting it, I said, look, I've got two weeks, which means I'm going to be rushed all the time. Mm-hmm. I'm going to be not so nice sometimes to you. I'm going to just yell across the set, do this, do that, whatever. You know, we got to get, we got to move, we got to move. I said, don't take offense on any of it, but... If we're filming and you think something is out of focus or there's a bobbled camera movement or something like that, no matter how much I've pushed you, you come to me and say, we have to do it again. Because I don't want to look at dailies the next day mm-hmm. and see uh, that there's something there we can't use. Because that's time that is taken up from your schedule. Well, not only that, but I, I go back. Yeah. Uh, uh, I, I had the uh, salon set for two days. Mm-hmm. A Saturday and a Sunday. I got it at discounted rates because the soundstage didn't normally work on Saturday and Sunday. So if if uh, if he had messed up or or if just in the course of shooting the shot something had gone wrong, uh, and then we didn't see it till a day or two later, we were screwed. So I said to him, "Don't be afraid to come to me and say, Graydon, we have to do this again." Because I'll say, oh, shit, okay, let's do it again. So anyhow, I don't think that ever happened, incidentally. But uh, uh, so we filmed for nine days. 
and it was now the 10th day mm-hmm. and the last day filming. And Michael Milan, the original cinematographer, showed up on the set just just to say oh. hello to everybody. And uh, Cundy came to me and he said, you know, it's only fair that Michael shoot the day. I said, I don't want Michael to shoot today. I want you. You've done a great job for nine days. He said, no, you know, I'll be his assistant. It shows you what kind of guy Dean Cundy was. Mm-hmm. So I said to Michael, listen, Dean wants you to shoot today and I'll go along with it. So you're the DP today and Dean will be your assistant. So anyhow, to make a long story short, I used Dean Cundy on my next eight films. I'll have to really count that. I'm probably not okay. going to All the films that I could, up right. to including Without Warning. Without Warning was my ninth film. So uh, three from the sixth day. So my next six films, I used Dean Cundy. In fact, Dean Cundy, when I finally put the pieces together, I had a, a Found the story, written the script, got mm-hmm. the financing. He was my first call. Before right. I called an actor, before I called anybody, because I wanted to make certain that Dean was available for filming. Well, Dean, uh, on this film with Arthur Godfrey I was talking about earlier, Angel mm-hmm. Aid, Dean came to me after that film, or maybe even during the filming, and he said, You know, Graydon, I have to get out of the business. I said, what, what are you talking about? He said, I- I'm not making enough money to support my family. I said, oh God, because I wasn't paying him anything. Mm-hmm. I was paying him what I could, which was probably a thousand a week or whatever. But you know, he worked three weeks for me or four weeks if, if we were lucky. And and then he would have to, that's the nature of the business, you know, mm-hmm. we're all working toward unemployment. Mm-hmm. Because when the movie's over, we got to find the next job. Mm-hmm. And uh, he he literally, even though he still had the movie van and he would rent it out on all of his films, uh, he was barely making ends meet. And he said, you know, my wife's giving me a hard time. I, I, I just I got to get out of the business. I'm going to sell the movie van and go down another path for my career. And I said, oh, God, Dean, you are supremely talented, and mm-hmm. operative and inventive and everything that a director would want in a DP. I'm very sorry to hear this. Are you sure? He says, well, you know, I don't know what else to do. So, uh, (laughs) the very next film he did was Halloween. Mm -hmm. Huge success. And his, uh, you know, in in the business that we're all in, Mm -hmm. Success is everything because the studio people have no idea how movies are made. Mm-hmm. They, just, they just don't know. But when you have a success like Dean had with Halloween, suddenly they say, oh, who was that cinematographer that did Halloween? Get him. He knows what he's great. Mm-hmm. He's great. Even though they probably hadn't even seen Halloween. But it was a, it was a phenomenally successful picture. So Dean suddenly was a hot commodity. Well, I was ready to make a picture called Without Warning. Mm-hmm. And uh, I had the financing, I had the script, da, 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 da. I called Dean. 
Dean, I've got another picture for you. Uh, he said, well, Graydon, I'm, I, I really appreciate what you did for me. You gave me my start. I love working with you. But my agent says I cannot do any more low-budget movies. Mm -hmm. And this, of course, was another on the cheap. Right. So I said to him, well, I, I understand, Dean, uh, you know, but let me send you the script just to get your thought on it, on, on, mm -hmm. on you know, what you think of it. Right. I sent him the script, and in just a couple of days, he got back and he said, that's a really good script. That may be the best script you've ever had. Mm -hmm. I said, well, I like it. I think it's got potential. And he said, a lot of it, almost all of it, takes place at night. Yeah, yeah. Uh, he said, how are we going to photograph those flying creatures at night? Mm -hmm. And I said to myself, did he just say, how are we? <laughs> <laughs> so against his agent's advice, he uh, agreed. It was a three-week picture. He agreed to be my cinematographer. And he was great, as always. Mm -hmm. And yes, he and I and, and uh, uh, our special effects people uh, figured out how to be able to see the flying creatures at night. With that little reflective strip around. Exactly, uh... exactly which was totally his idea. He mm -hmm. said, well, put a little reflective uh, uh, strip around these creatures. And when we fly them, I'll light it so it glows in the dark. Mm -hmm. And uh, it'll make it so they can be seen. And it works. So. <laughs> and for you, when it comes to DPs, lightning struck twice because then you stumbled upon Nick von Sternberg. Exactly, which is what, what I was about to tell you. So uh, my next picture was a picture called The Return. And uh, I didn't even ask Dean if he would film it because he was out filming romancing the stone with Michael Douglas mm -hmm. <laughs> you know I mean he had he had made his bones and rightfully so so I had to have a new DP which I had not had for basically 10 years and I interviewed two guys uh, uh, I, I'm not going to mention the name if you want to mm -hmm. go on IMDB you can find it I, I did not hire Nick von Sternberg. I hired another guy. Uh, the other guy was very good. Very, very, very good. In fact, he shot, a few years after that, he shot Michael Jackson's uh, Thriller. Mm -hmm. So, big-time guy. Nice guy. But <laughs> he he had his crew. I always allow the DP to bring his own crew because people right. that's what you want. He had his crew, and they would argue and almost come to blows on the set. Uh, really very loud and obnoxious and mm -hmm. to each other, to each other. Right. Uh, but it was a, it was a cast. I, I had a very good cast, maybe the best cast. Uh, this is a picture called The Return. The Return, yes, with uh, Jan Michael Vincent and yeah. Sybil Shepard during a very brief period where she couldn't open anything. Yeah, yeah, and and uh, I also had Raymond Burr, and okay. and uh, uh, Ray had done a hundred or more films, mm -hmm. everything from uh, uh, 
Perry Mason for years on television, uh, to Godzilla. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, he worked all the time. But he got upset, and it's. It, I think this is the only actor that I can recall that really got upset on a set with me. He he got so distressed by the bellicose nature mm-hmm. of the crew to each other, not right. to the actors and not to me. But he was there, and he, you know. Mm-hmm. And finally, he said he he yelled at the crew. Of course, I was five feet away from him. He yelled at the crew, if you don't stop yelling at one another, I'm walking off this goddamn set. And I thought, oh, Jesus Christ, if he walks off the set, I'm done. So, anyhow, I finished the picture. They continued to yell. He just, you know, got it off. Raymond Burr got it off his chest. Mm-hmm. An ample chest, believe me. Yes. So, so the next picture uh, picture called Wacko. Mm-hmm. Which is what the first. I remembered that I, that I had two cinematographers. I think I had interviewed three or four, but two of them came down to the final, which was the guy I used on the on the return, and the the finalist, the runner-up, if you will, was Nick von Sternberg. So I called Nick right away and said, Nick, doing another picture. I'm kind of sorry I didn't hire you on the first one, but it had nothing to do with you. It was just a feeling I had. And that's true. I mean, how the hell do you right. know? You know? So I said, but but I'd like to have you shoot uh, Wacko for me. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. Uh, Nick was like everybody else. We were all looking for work. Mm-hmm. I mean, as I said, we were all working, myself included, toward unemployment. When the, when the picture ended, uh, we all had to find the next picture. So Nick uh, shot for me uh, Wacko. Really liked to work with it. Just exactly the opposite of the other cameraman. Mm-hmm. Very quiet with his crew. Uh, very quiet with the actors. Very quiet, almost to the point where he, he'd like me, he would whisper to me. I'd be standing mm-hmm. right next to him. And he'd whisper something in my ear. What if we did this? Or what if we did that? Or he would come up with an idea. Very inventive guy. And... Uh, which I liked very much because if anybody was going to yell on a set, it was going to be me. Right. So, <laughs> so we shot Wacko, successful picture. Uh, then we did Joysticks, successful picture. Loved working with him, very inventive. Then I went to Malta and uh, to make a picture over there. That was fine. I, I didn't even know where Malta was. <laughs> uh, uh, I thought I thought well they must have falcons because the Maltese right. falcon uh, turns out a little island off the coast of Italy. So they had approached me because they wanted an American director to come and direct a film there, and the deal was I would write the script and I would bring an American actor with me. And I said, okay, I'll do it, but I'm going to bring an American cinematographer with me also. Other than that, it's, it would be a full Maltese crew. So I contact Nick and Joe Don Baker, who had been in both Wacko and Joystick. Mm-hmm. And I convinced Joe Don to go to Malta. Uh, and Nick, of course, was 
eager to go. So we all went over there and we made Final Justice, which is a Texas sheriff goes to Malta and ends up killing a bunch of mafia people. Pretty good picture. So uh, in Malta, they have a tank. That's, that's what they're famous for. They have a huge tank. It's about four feet deep and about the size of two football fields. And it oh, it's on a bluff overlooking the Mediterranean Sea. Is it mm. Mediterranean Sea or Mediterranean Ocean? Whatever it is. I think it's, it's the sea. I think it's, it's the sea, yes. I think it's <laughs> So, uh, and it overlooks that so that the, the perspective, if you're filming correctly, is an infinite sea. So mm. you they, they build uh, sets on wheels. Again, the water's about four feet deep. So they can push the sets around to make it look like it's in the ocean. Right. And you can film. And they filmed a lot of major, major, major. Yeah, I think Popeye was filmed there. Oh, yeah, Popeye was filmed there. I think and, the uh, sit village from Popeye is still there. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. So anyhow, Nick was there with me. We filmed successfully. And I loved the idea. I, now, I did not. I was only in the tank for one day. Mm-hmm. Because when I wrote the script, I didn't even know the tank existed. Right. So, but but once I was there and I saw the tank, I thought, wow, I want to do a movie on this tank, shooting mm-hmm. this tank. So I come back to Los Angeles and I start writing a movie, uh, which eventually became Uninvited. Unin- yes. And uh, I start writing this script about a a uh, bad guys on a luxury yacht. Uh, uh, taking their ill-gotten Wall Street gains. Because at that time, there was a, a big uh, hoop to do about uh, uh, thieves on Wall Street. Games. Right. Yep. So I thought, okay, my guys are one of those guys, and they're they're uh, uh, going down to the Cayman Islands to cash in and never come back to the United States. So there's my bad guys. Mm-hmm. Then I thought, okay, what's the good guy? Now, in the meantime, Without Warning was a very successful picture, especially in the international market. We won the Film Fantastique Award for the best science fiction film at the Paris Festival. We did huge business uh, in Asia Mm -hmm. uh, uh, and the rest of Europe. So people came to me, distributors came to me and said, Oh, you got to do another sci-fi horror film like, like without warning. So I said, okay, that that makes sense. So I've got these bad guys on a yacht heading to the Cayman Islands. What can be on that boat that could be sci-fi horror? So I came up with the idea of a rat, uh, and I wrote the first draft of the script that a rat a uh, a poisoned rat had gotten on board this ship, and I had to figure out how to get young people on this on this ocean on this uh, uh, yacht. <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, and I figured out college kids on uh, spring break down in the South Florida, they get on the yacht for whatever reason, and off they go. And there's this poisonous rat. So I wrote it. Mm-hmm. And I gave it to some friends 
And somebody said, ah, a rat. Who the hell wants to see rats? Rats are disgusting. And I said, well, what about Willard? Yeah, well, you know, rats are disgusting. So I said, okay, I kind of agree with that. Why don't I make it a cat? <laughs> and and the cat has to be innocent, sweet, nothing. <laughs> the cat never does anything wrong. But inside of the cat, evil uh, uh, corporate uh, uh, manipulators are doing experiments on the mm -hmm. cat, and they have implanted in the cat this venomous cat-like creature, mm -hmm. but uh, that lives within this cat. And when the cat is agitated, out comes this creature, does its malevolence, and then back into the inside of the cat. And meanwhile, the people that are stroking and petting the cat mm -hmm. and that's cat and everything have no idea that inside of it is this thing that eventually will terrorize them. So I kind of like that. I thought that was a good idea. So anyhow, I wrote it. Now uh, I decide, okay, I'm going to get on a plane, fly to Malta, and uh, make arrangements to film there. So I get on the plane, I go to uh, uh, Malta, and believe it or not, I could not find a yacht mm -hmm. that was big enough to have, a, in effect, a chase between the cat and the human. A cat right. and mouse. A cat and mouse. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, they had huge ones that would cost me yeah. 10 times the budget of my total picture. Mm -hmm. Which incidentally was around three hundred thousand yeah. dollars. I, I want to emphasize that I, I think with the exception of the Forbidden Dance, you've never spent more than four hundred thousand dollars on a film. That's accurate. Yeah. And the Forbidden Dance was not my money, it was Monaco's mm -hmm. money. Mm -hmm. So anyhow, I could not find a way to film in Malta. So I fly back to the United States and I had heard about the filming done in Jamaica. So I stop in New York, fly down from New York to Jamaica, look there, and they just had little, I don't know, fishing boats or whatever. I mean, they were nice, you know, mm -hmm. but they were, and they were near big enough. So I go back to Los Angeles, and I'm convinced I'm never going to be able to make this movie. Damn it. Good script, but I just don't have a way to do it. Eventually, I find my way down to uh, Long Beach Harbor. Mm-hmm. And there was a, uh, I was told about a yacht there that was for sale and had been there for many months, just tied to the pier. Uh, so I went and I looked at it and it was perfect. It was huge. It was white. It was beautiful. I think I say in the book, uh, I looked and I thought I saw the ghost of Aristotle of Nassau mm -hmm. on deck. So <laughs> anyhow, I make a deal because the guy had sold it. And it was leaving in like two weeks, three weeks to go up to Seattle where the new owner was. So I made a deal and it was just found money for him. So he was willing to do it for relatively uh, inexpensively for the value of the boat. Of mm -hmm. the, uh, so anyway, I make the deal. We make the movie. Nick von Sternberg is wonderful. Uh, I'm very pleased with the movie. Uh, it was, I said earlier, the first movie I, I, I knew would go direct to video. And uh, it did. And uh, we got enough 
so that I was able to make my next movie, and then I got enough mm-hmm. to make my next movie, and enough to make my next. Right. Which, which is really all I ever cared about. I mean, look, <laughs> I, I was not no longer starving like I was when I first got to London. Right. But uh, I needed to to make the budget of the picture back plus enough for me to live on for a year because it basically took a year to make these movies. Right. And then on to the next one. And, and uh, eventually, uh, through a series of luck, mm-hmm. I ran into Menachem Golan and, and I made uh, Lombada the Forbidden Dance for him. <clears throat> and then <laughs> he wanted me to go to Russia to make a movie there uh, with Robert England, mm-hmm. which uh, I wrote the script and went over there and made that movie. And then he wanted me to go to Moscow to make another movie for him. I did. Then he wanted me to stay in Moscow to make yet another movie. But right. we, we could not come to agreement on the script. Mm-hmm. So I said no. He got pissed. And uh, because very few people ever said no to Menachem. Right. Uh, so, uh, but I liked Menachem. It was difficult mm-hmm. in a lot of ways. Never really to me. I, I made him a lot of money on right. dance. I remember when that movie. I remember when that movie came out, and I remember the the race to <laughs> to get the two Lombada movies out yeah. At, yeah. The, at the same uh, you know before each other. And How it's, did you since we're on Lombada, the, the Forbidden Dance? How did you decide on Kid Creole? You know something. Uh, I did not. Oh, Menachem. Menachem. I mean, we. We knew we needed a a, 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 a dance at the end mm-hmm. and a live band playing the Lombada song. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, Menachem said, I said, Who, who's available? He said, I don't know, but I'll find somebody. So a week or two later, he came up with Kid Creel. Mm-hmm. Who they, in his office found him? I don't know. But yeah, I, they were, I, they I were like a hot take, item in that I'd time. like to take credit for it, but I can't. Okay. Because... Especially here in New York, Kid Creole and the Coconuts were a big thing around that time. Yeah, they were. They, I I remember that they were. Uh, it's funny how how uh, in in the research for the show, I'd uh, I, I'd of course heard about. Um, there's been there's been a lot of YouTube videos with clips from Unseen on it and stuff. So I'd heard about it. So, but when I went to your website to to get your book, on the cheap, um, I. Uh, I started looking at your filmography and stuff and then just started realizing how much, uh, like I was saying um, uh, earlier before the podcast, I I grew up in a cultural wasteland. So like I had some friends who had HBO and whose parents would take them to the drive-in to see the R-rated movies and stuff. And sometimes I'd go with them. And I remember seeing the trailer for Wacko and Joysticks when they came out and I can't tell you how how much how big a deal those two trailers were to like ten year old kids who yeah. saw them. They, yeah. they were the talk of the school around and uh, and then I saw that you'd written the script for Psychic Killer. Yes. Which um, when 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 I was growing up, we had two TV stations that we could really pull in a PBS station and our local CBS affiliate, and at night. If the weather was good, you could get this uh, Canadian station called uh-huh. CKWS, and after midnight they would play R-rated movies. 
and I would sneak a, t- a sneak a black and white TV up into the closet in my room to watch horror movies at night. And one of those movies was Psychic Killer. Yes. And I remember I, when I was a kid, I was raised on Spielberg movies and big budget stuff. So I was kind of a snob about I didn't understand how to enjoy low budget movies. And I was like, well, it's a low budget horror movie. And I got I remember getting completely sucked into it and going, man, this is way it was it was like my secret movie for the longest time that nobody ever heard of. And I was just like, this movie has way more style and mm-hmm. and uh and uh i remember the direct that the, there was there was a, a a just a touch of some great style and the direction to it and but i remember at that age that was one of the first times i remember i really like the script to this movie i really like how it's how it's put together it was it was very simple but at the same time it let you fill in with your own imagination, what was going on with with the guy who gave him the psychic powers and stuff? Yeah. It was, it was like a it was like a very good long Twilight Zone episode or something like that, and and no and I just remember nobody else ever talking about Psychic Killer and and for some reason since I saw it on Canada Canadian TV I always thought it was probably like a Canadian production or something that's why nobody'd heard of it. So, but I was very excited when I saw on your. Uh, on your list, uh, your filmography that you'd worked on, Psychic Killer. Well, thank you. Uh, uh, <laughs> I was working with a guy uh, who who owned a film laboratory, and uh, he came to me and he said, uh, "Okay, Graydon, uh, you've directed one picture, uh, excuse me, two pictures, <coughs> and uh, I'll let you direct another picture." If you write a script for me, I want it to be a horror film. I want it to be about ghosts. I said, okay, uh, because obviously I was young, very young, and I wanted to direct. So I, I started writing this script, and I heard on the radio about uh, Dr. Thelma Moss at, again, I've forgotten if it's UL, UCLA or USC. She was a professor there who was dealing in Curlian photography. Mm-hmm. Curlian photography was uh, uh, a photographic evidence of an aura around all living creatures, human and plants or animals of any kind. And she was able to photograph this aura. So I heard her interviewed on the radio. I went over to UCLA, I think it was, and uh, talked to her about it. And of course, I uh, she was not interested in having it become a horror movie, so I didn't say that. I just uh, wanted to get information on the uh, on the Curlian photography. So, uh, you know, I looked at it, very interesting. And uh, I thought, well, wait a minute, what if instead of a ghost, which seemed uh, uh, pedantic to me, what if I uh, uh, have this aura be controlled by somebody and it could go out <coughs> Excuse me. It could go out and do whatever uh, the person controlling it wanted it to do. Mm-hmm. So there was my horror film, <laughs> uh, and and the guy, I gave it to the guy, uh, the script. He loved it. I started pre-production, and he came to me. And he said, "Oh, Graydon, by the way, you're not going to direct." Ooh, I was upset. <laughs> mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, I needed the money desperately. I was 
you know, having trouble paying my $75 a month rent. And uh, uh, so he paid me for the script, I think a thousand bucks, which, which was uh, for me, a life uh, uh, buoy thrown to me in the ocean. And uh, so he hired another director. I worked on the film uh, as the producer for the money guy that owned the laboratory. And uh, it's a good picture. It, it's it's it, it the story works. I think. Yeah, I just I just rewatched it a couple weeks ago and uh, and enjoyed it just as much. I love the, the the scene that clinched it for me was the scene at the um, construction site. Yeah. Where the guy's singing his opera and and the weight is just, on the crane is just slowly following him around until right. you know the the crescendo. It was and. Uh, that was when I was like, "Wow, this movie is way more fun than it really, really should be." It was, it was great. Um, my my other big question for you is, I um, the the securing funds for a movie was that that part on on some level was it fun for you because you're obviously you were good at doing it, and and the the wrangling involved for it or was it or was it awful like to to me if that was if that that part of the job would probably have been the part that that broke me that i wouldn't have been able to deal with but you seem almost in the book to almost enjoy the the you know the the process of of wrangling different people and money from different places and paying one guy to 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 you know, pay another or collecting for one guy, paying another, and and going out. Was it was it that fun on any enjoyable to you on any level? Only enjoyable if it was successful. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I mean, uh, it's uh, getting the financing, independent, low budget financing, for a picture, is very very difficult. Yes, I mean, <clears throat> in today's world. You can take a you, hell. You can take your cell phone and go out and and make a movie. It, and Back it's in my done. day, yes. you, you had to have film stock, which was even in a low, low, low budget movie, was twenty five thousand mm-hmm. dollars. You had to have film laboratory, which was another twenty five thousand uh, dollars. You 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 then had to make the picture, cast, mm-hmm. <laughs> crew, equipment, etc. So. I was very, very lucky in that if I came across an opportunity to, mm-hmm. to get an investor, I was able to convince them. I mean, look, I would always say, and it's true, even today on the low budget stuff you can do, motion pictures are a very difficult thing to be successful at. Mm-hmm. I mean, most films, even major studio films, lose money. They're a difficult thing to be uh, so, unsuccessful at. <laughs> it's very difficult. So I was lucky enough to end up directing 20 films, mm-hmm. most of which I wrote. Uh, and it was over about a 30-year period. Uh, and at, at, on the uh, on High Riders, which was my fourth or fifth picture, I then made enough money that I didn't have to worry about paying the rent. <laughs> so so uh, from that, for, from 1977 to basically 97, for that 20 years, <coughs> uh, I was able to sustain myself and continue to make movies. 
and I only lost money on one movie, and frankly, it's one of my favorites, maybe that's why, and I think one of my better movies. Mm-hmm. But the industry changed. I saw the industry go from being able to take a picture out theatrically and mm-hmm. make money to VHS and make money to DVD and make money. And then it became very, very difficult because the DVD market basically has gone to cable television. Mm -hmm. And cable television, you're still Mm -hmm. dealing one way or another with major studios. So the independent has a damn hard Mm -hmm. road to hold. To get his picture distributed correctly. my my uh, housemate has worked uh, on a couple movies with uh, Fred Olin Ray. Yes. Who's who's been doing doing fairly like keeping working regularly doing yes, like yeah, movies for like Ray. for like Lifetime and stuff like that. Yes. You know, so he's yeah. doing like Christmas pictures and stuff like yeah. that. And every yeah. once in a while, he'll get to do a little horror movie on his yeah. own. But like uh, I was asking her, you know does he hate doing these lifetime movies? And she's like, he just loves making movies. Yeah. <laughs> he wants to be making, he likes being on the set and making a movie. So if he's making a movie for lifetime, it's the same thing as making any other movie. It's, it's the, the act of doing it that he Absolutely. enjoys. I agree. And I, 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 I know Fred, uh, not well, but, uh, uh, he read my book and he liked it a lot. And he contacted me and we, we, we had a lot of mutual friends that mm-hmm. we'd, with over the years <coughs> okay guys i'm getting close to where i got okay to say goodbye i have i'll I give have, you five more minutes if you okay, want to ask them. A, a hypothetical for you and a statement for you let's say i woke up and there was two million dollars in my bed and i decided to give it to you thank to you <laughs> well first i say thank you yes um how would you, given today's technology and the way things have changed in filmmaking, how would you go about making this film? First of all, I would not make it on film. I'd make it digitally. Hmm. Uh, <clears throat> and uh, I would, I would probably, well, you gotta if, if you've got the money, then you got to come up with the script. Mm-hmm. So I, I would probably lead toward. A sci-fi horror film. Mm-hmm. Try to make the monster unique. I mean, it was my feeling over the years that if it's a big shark that hadn't been seen before, that was unique. Mm-hmm. If it was a eight-year-old child uh, uh, whose head spun around and she spit out pea soup from the devil, mm-hmm. that was unique. My little flying creatures uh, on and without warning, that was unique. The, the monster coming out of a cat mm-hmm. was unique. So I would try and come up with a unique monster. Uh, and in today's world, I think I would finish the script, or at least an outline of story, mm-hmm. and take it to a cable television source, seeing mm-hmm. if I could get them to either... <laughs> I commit to buying when I finished it or co-financing. Mm-hmm. I don't think I would go as I did on all, almost all of my pictures, just uh, balls to the wall and make the picture and say, okay, I'll be able to get my money back. 
Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of a lot of the streaming services lately are you know, net, Netflix was writing lots of checks to absolutely filmmakers. Oh, I could I could see you doing something really good with Shutter. Yeah, yeah. You know, you mentioned Roger Corman earlier, and mm-hmm. Roger distributed uh, 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 Final uh, Excuse Me uh, Angels Brigade for me, and I, I I got to know Roger a little bit, and we would bump into each other at conventions and and uh uh we were in milan oh let's see this is actually the picture i did right after uninvited a picture called uh, skinheads mm-hmm. and i was in milan with my foreign sales agent and we were selling and uh, uninvited did quite well for him. i mean i got my money back plus a profit just from foreign uh and a year later i was there with uh, uh, skinheads mm-hmm. and the difference between the amount of buyers that were there for uninvited. Milan mm-hmm. <coughs> was a uh, thing in Italy, a convention that buyers from around the world would come to meet sellers of films. And I was there for five or six of my films. And uh, so I had been there the year before with uninvited and I would guess Take Germany as an example. We, we had a booth there and I had a videotape of the trailer and so on. And there were maybe four, five, maybe even six German buyers that would come in and look at it and they would be interested. I would play one of them off against the other to try and get more money for my mm-hmm. for the German rights. So a year later, I come back with skinhead. And where the year before, when you walked down the aisle, you'd have to walk sideways. There were so many mm-hmm. people. That year, there was almost nobody there. You could shoot a cannon down the uh, hallway and not hit anybody. <laughs> and and uh, I think I had one buyer come in from Germany. Mm-hmm. And I thought, my God, what a change. What difference. So I'm walking down the aisle, and I see Roger, Roger Corman. Roger, how you doing? Oh, great. How are you? <clears throat> and he said... I've been coming to these things for more than 20 years. I had been about 10 years. He said, uh, and it's astonishing. There's nobody here. This, what, you know, the world has completely changed in one year. He said, my advice, if you get any offers at all for your picture, take them. Because it's all over. He went back to Los Angeles and he sold his uh, DVD company. I think it was called New World or something like that. Concord. He sold it, I'm sure, for several million dollars. Roger was one of the smartest, if not the smartest guys I ever had contact with in the industry in my 30 years. And my statement for you, and then we'll let you go, is basically I want to thank you for the enjoyment you have given me throughout my years. Um... I saw joysticks on the on the screen back in the 80s. I just yeah. recently, yet last night, rewatched it, laughed at it still. Yes, thank you. And um, thank you for your time. You have an open door. If there's ever anything you want to promote or talk about, you just let us know, and we will definitely put open a seat for you. And when we I get that $2 million, say, we'll be giving uh, you a call. I, I, yes. I've, I've enjoyed this. And if you need something more to clarify or whatever, don't hesitate to ask, and I'll be happy to, to fill you in. And, and once again, the book, which if you're interested in filmmaking, 
I definitely recommend you pick up and read it. It's, it's a really fast read, but it's a really fascinating read. It is called On the Cheap, and it is available on Amazon and also through Graydon's website, www.graydonclark.com. Do I have that right? You do. Uh, uh, actually, the www comes first, but I think most yep. people know that. <laughs> yeah, but if, I, you, if you if you order from my website, then I will autograph uh, anything and everything, even personal personalize the autograph. So, uh, you know, I, I I do think if you have interest in film or filmmaking, uh, the book is informative. I I always I always say that if you know I mean the the books on on large budget filmmaking are interesting to read but the books on low budget filmmaking are almost invaluable to anybody who wants even though the like say if you're 19 years old and reading your book the industry has changed and the way physically a lot of the things are made has changed but the philosophy behind getting a movie done and the process and the collaboration that goes in it is invaluable in these books they're the most um, usually the, like, um, low budget filmmaker books are the most inspirational books to me as a filmmaker. So I'm putting yours right in the shelf, right next to cough. My favorites, Kaufman's and, uh, Corman's and John Waters, uh, um, shock value book as well. As I, I'm honored invaluable. to be, I'm honored to be thought of in, uh, the same light as those guys. Oh Yeah. And and I I just have one statement at the end and uh, it's about uninvited, and that like um, I I think we were talking earlier about how I could only find it on MST3K and yeah. it's getting you know it's getting a reputation as one of those movies that's so quote quote unquote so bad it's good. I disagree with that term. A hundred if if something is so bad it's good then it's good. <laughs> That's right. that you don't like things ironically, you like them. And uh, and as I watch the film, it's a good film. Yes, sometimes you can see the arm of the puppeteer. Yeah. I, I I'm a puppeteer. I kind of like seeing the arms of the puppeteer <laughs> every once in a while. I um but um all I know is from the beginning to the end of that movie, I was enjoying myself. I was engaged in it and and pulled into it. Uh, I, and from watching some of your other films, definitely the 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 acting is always of sort of a higher caliber in your your movies. You get solid performances out of everybody, and everybody plays it plays it straight. You know, you got Clue Gallagher um, chewing the scenery a little bit, but the the main characters are playing it straight. And and it works. I was engaged through the whole whole movie. I remember watching it and going, oh, how much do I have? Oh, it's almost over. Oh, my God. You know, so I was never bored. And uh, yeah, I hope I, I hope people I, I, I just hope in the future people learn to appreciate movies like this beyond the MST3K level. And I think a lot of it has to do with getting this. I think the story of how they're made almost is is as interesting as the movies themselves and adds to it so that that's just my my little rant i had a great i had a great time with this movie i'm i'm glad it, it's even doubly so that i got to see it 
and talk to you afterwards. So um, thank you very much. Okay, guys. Thank you so much. It's been a lot of fun. All right. Have yourself a beautiful day, Graydon. You too. Thanks. Pussycat, I've got flowers and lots of hours to spend with you. So go and bottle your cute little pussycat nose. Pussycat, pussycat, I love you. Yes, I do. You and your pussycat nose. What's new, pussycat? Visit our website at twotruefreaks.com. Two True Freaks is always spelled T-W-O-T-R-U-E-F-R-E-A-K-S. You can email Two True Freaks directly at twotruefreaks at gmail.com. Two True Freaks and all of its excellent affiliates are available on iTunes, and you can choose to subscribe to either the entire network if you wish, or pick whichever individual shows you want to follow. We have so many shows to choose from, there's just bound to be one that appeals to your particular fandom. Just search Two True Freaks with an exclamation mark at the end, space, and the number two. You can find Two True Freaks on Facebook. Just search for Two True Freaks. If you ever leave your house and you actually have friends, why don't you tell them about Two True Freaks? If you've enjoyed our show, please, won't you take a moment to rate us on iTunes? That helps others find the show, too. Thanks for listening. And join us every Monday for new episodes of Two True Freaks. You and your pussycat lips. You and your pussycat eyes. You and your pussycat Meow, 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 meow.